Welcome to Sepsis is a Devastating Disease. Listen to the survivors and those bereaved. Session 14 of the Second World Sepsis Congress. This session is a little different. It features five amazing people who have either survived sepsis themselves or lost a loved one to it. It is chaired by Ray Schachter, also a sepsis survivor and member of the board of the Global Sepsis Alliance. We implore you to listen to this episode in full and share it with your loved ones. Maybe you can also listen to it together over Christmas. Without further ado, over to Ray to get us started. May I begin at this point in time to introduce uh, the panel, Sepsis is a Devastating Disease, Listen to Survivors and Those Bereaved. My name is Ray Schachter. I'm in Vancouver, Canada, and have the privilege of moderating this panel of five people whose lives have been profoundly affected by sepsis. I became involved with the Global Sepsis Alliance about four years ago and am a member of the executive committee. GSA organizes this Congress. I am a survivor having fallen mortally ill with sepsis in 1996, and I defied the odds by surviving. I've told my personal story many times to educate the public and health providers about sepsis and its consequences. The people you're about to hear from will tell their stories, their struggles, to cope with the consequences of sepsis, both short and long-term, and their personal contributions and commitments to sepsis awareness, treatment, and prevention. Our panel members will speak in the order of the program information. I will provide only the briefest of details and let them take it from there. Each panelist will have approximately 12 minutes to present and can then answer questions which you can send to me on the chat line. We will limit the questions after each talk, but come back to them at the end of the session, uh, time permitting. Please send your questions on the chat line and I will direct them to the panelists. Our panelists uh, will uh, speak together at the end of uh, all of the sessions. And um, uh, with that, I would like to introduce the first panelist to tell his story. Carl Flatley, a retired dentist from Richmond, Indiana originally, now living in Florida. In 2002, Carl lost his daughter, Erin, at age 23, to sepsis. Since that time, Carl has been a major contributor to various sepsis campaigns. And in fact, Carl founded the Sepsis Alliance, which has been so active in the United States in promoting and advocating prevention and treatment of sepsis and legislative changes. Carl, I am now invite you to tell your story. First, I'd like to thank the WHO and Global Sepsis Alliance for hosting this conference. When I started the Sepsis Alliance 15 years ago, if you put the word sepsis in an email, it got flagged as a misspelling. Now, here we are 15 years later, we're on a conversation on our phone with people around the world, and this just kind of blow, <laughs> blows me away, but thanks, everyone. So, in 2002, I did lose my daughter, Erin, and uh, it was after a routine hemorrhoidectomy, and uh, she died from septic shock and medical malpractice. 
Uh, we spent three years in litigation, and uh, it was a horrible thing to go through. And I can tell you the experience of losing a child. Time does not heal the pain. Secondly, she's not in a better place. And last, there is no closure for someone who loses a child. None at all. And since Aaron died, four and a half million others in the United States have died since her death. I find that inexcusable. I mean, shame on all of us, but, but we are making change. What I'd like to highlight are those people who survived. There are 10 and a half million survivors during the same 15 year period. We are getting better at reducing mortality, but I don't think we're doing a good enough job addressing those that survived. Along with the 38 amputations daily in the U.S., organ dysfunctions, cognitive deficiencies, many suffer from post-sepsis syndrome. I belong to seven or eight different support groups. I've, I've had sepsis myself, but I, I have no issues. But I get on to see if I can help other people. And these people are struggling. And they talk about trying to get help and having their doctors understand them. And they, their family doesn't understand them. And they, it's a horrible thing to go through. So I think we need to have the same endeavor as we have in reducing the mortality is take care of those survivors. I mean, we are getting a good handle on the physical burden of sepsis. I don't think we have a good handle on the emotional toll of the people that survive sepsis with amputations, cognitive function, and all the other things. And it can't be calculated. I mean, the pain, the misery it is just, it's horrible. We all know it because that's why we're doing what we're doing. So sepsis truly is a blanket of death, disability, and despair. And I just want to thank everyone on this call and those listening for what you're doing. And we just got to keep up the fight with doing things like this. So thank you very much. And I'll stand by. Thank you. Uh Carl, could you perhaps uh, just expand on uh, your public uh, advocacy and what you've accomplished over the past uh, uh, decade and a half through the well, acceptance of Alliance and elsewhere? Yeah, so we've come a long way. When I started, I had uh, my retirement plan and one sponsor. We've got two dozen national sponsors now. Uh, we do everything from billboards across the United States to webinars to we have sepsis heroes this Thursday. Uh, we're meeting with uh, DARPA and Congress in Chicago in a couple of days. Uh, we've got a very active board, probably to 25 members. Uh, none of them are paid. No one gets reimbursed. These are all dedicated people. And so it has not been me that have done this. It's the people that have come on board. And I, I just can't tell you the different partnerships we're in. Uh, working with other groups and hospitals and states. I mean, we, we, it's hard to keep up. So uh, the contributions make it happen, and uh, we're doing well, and we're, we're going to continue to grow. Uh, I couldn't be more pleased with where we are right now. Thanks for asking. Uh, Carl, um, I was wondering, um, uh, you mentioned medical malpractice and litigation, and uh, that was part of my battle as well. Uh, that, uh, I was misdiagnosed in 1996. Uh, Aaron passed in 2002. Uh, have you any observations on whether the medical community, uh, there would be less 
malpractice or concerns about uh, misdiagnosis today than there were uh, in 2002? Well, I think first they've got to be forthcoming and they've got to speak up. When we lost Aaron, not one doctor spoke to me from that day. They didn't even come out and tell me she died. They sent a nurse. Then they surrounded the wagon. So it was that time where there were no apologies. I never got had anyone, any physician tell me they were sorry for the outcome. I mean, they didn't have to say they did something wrong, which they did. But no one even said they were sorry for the outcome. I think you've got to be upfront with the patients. They're very smart these days. And you can't just bull over them. And, I mean, it's a devastating thing to lose a child. And you just want answers. And they didn't talk. They didn't talk. And it took three years. $500,000 to get to court and get it settled. It's a travesty. Everybody lost. No one won. So I think we just have to have better communication between the patients and the health care providers. That would help. Yes. Uh, I also know that you've uh, been a great contributor to the Global Sepsis Alliance and the awards we give out every year. And I Prefer actually, Carl, if you could speak about that to our audience rather than me. Can you do so? Yeah, so I guess I've been doing it for three or four years now, and we've created the Global Steps Awards. I, I met uh, Dr. Reinhardt a few years ago, probably 15 years ago, because when I lost Aaron, I truly ran around the world trying to figure out who knows anything about this, and no one did. Went to CDC, NIH, all this, and I just it's such a loss when you lose your child that you want them to be remembered. And I wanted the world to remember Erin. She's made a difference. So well, they've, been, they've been very well received and it highlights the effort of different countries, institutions, physicians. Uh, CDC was honored this year. They've done a tremendous job. So I think they're a very important award and I plan on continuing that effort for Erin. And I, I'd like to thank you publicly on behalf of GSA for your contributions. Um, do you have you. any, uh, any uh, n just, uh, I'm sure you've had a chance to look at the um, experiences of uh, our other panelists. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add about their experiences uh, or have them respond to when they give their presentations following you? Well, I, we're, all, we're all in it together. I mean, you know, we all suffer in different ways. But I think when I see we have face to steps on our website, we have over a thousand victims on there. And there's a, a thread that runs through there and it's early recognition. And it's got to be done by the patient also, not just the physician. 87% of sepsis cases start in the communities. If the patient doesn't get to the hospital in a timely manner, the physician has little chance of getting a good outcome. So that's what we've seen with our thousand people that have uh, filled out our face of sepsis, that it's that early recognition and they've got to get there first. It's on them. So we need public awareness very badly. And then once they get to the hospital, we need everybody on board, not just a few champion doctors. We need every staff, every member of pharmacists, the entire team. So I think the other panelists will speak to that also. I think they'll feel the same. Uh, and uh, just. Uh the other panelists will also comment on the emotional and physical toll of, sur that, uh, of survivors. Not we, we know the impact on families of 
like yours who have lost a person. Uh, but um, just speaking for myself, uh, I I believe that the physical toll and emotional toll carries on for decades. And this is just uh, really beginning to be understood. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on that, Carl? Well, it, it does go on for decades, and I think it changed your whole life. You know, they talk about the new normal. And I've got friends who've survived, and they're not the same. Uh, I've had steps, I have no issues, but even losing a child, it affects you forever. So I don't think anyone gets over it. I mean, I was lucky not to have, have any issues, but that's only half of them. Uh, 50% of the survivors have issues, and few of them get over it. It's just a new normal. They have to deal with it. And it's, it's horrible, and a lot of other people don't understand. So they're in a vacuum for a long time. It's God bless them for hanging on because when you lose a child, I think if you only had one, you might commit suicide. It's that that heavy, and you see people who struggle with these post sepsis things. Um, they're they're desperate. They're looking for help, and and we need to be there for them. Yes. Uh, thanks, Carl. Uh, I think we'll we'll be coming back at the end to more questions, uh, and I'd like to uh, turn to. Uh, the next participant. Thank you very much, Carl, for your presentation and your continuing help. It's been so important uh, to uh, this Congress and also to the, the Global Sepsis Alliance. You're welcome, Ray. Uh, Thank you. So I'd like to introduce you to Fiona Gray, who in 2014 was a very healthy young woman, having just given birth to her daughter. Eight months later, she felt quote, sicker than I'd ever felt before. And I uh, quote this from her story found on the GSA website and online, because that specific comment applies to so many people who have suffered from sepsis or who have seen their family members stricken with sepsis. Uh, it is understood by the patient that they felt sicker than ever before but not really understood by the healthcare providers uh, who, in my view, have to listen more carefully. Um, fortunately, Fiona survived and will tell you her story and how she later became involved in advocating for better knowledge and awareness of sepsis and quality care. In addition to her own experience, Fiona, can you also tell us about your connection with the Australian Sepsis Network. So I'll turn it over to you, Fiona. Thanks very much um, for that kind, kind introduction, Raymond. Um, also just want to say thank you so much to Carl for um, his um, contribution. Um, I'm so grateful for all of the, um, the advocacy work he does um, and has done. He's um, inspirational. Um, before I uh, get into a bit of my story, um, I just, I guess, want to uh, paint a bit of a picture about what's um, led me to be so passionate about sepsis awareness. Um, I mean, obviously, um, my own experience um, three years ago, that shock, um, it, it ignited that fire in my belly to, um, and, and I will talk a bit more about um, how that came about, but I think that... Um, while going along this journey, um, 
and really learning about um, the burden of sepsis, um, not only in Australia but um, around the world. Um, I think the thing that's really affected me the most and, and has really um, inspired me um, but also fueled me from, I guess, an, uh, an ang anger, um, a, a place of anger, um, is when I hear about people that, that don't survive um, or people that are left with um, long-term um, side effects. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm relatively um, okay um, post-septic shock, but um, in particular, I want to acknowledge um, the children that, um, that don't survive sepsis. Um, and I'd really like to um, acknowledge two families in Australia, um, the families of Thomas Snell, and um, sorry for getting emotional, and also Maddie Jones. Um, as a parent, I cannot even begin to imagine um, what they've gone through. And um, I'm so grateful for the work that they're now doing um, in memory of their beautiful children to um, create better awareness. So my story, um, what I really want to focus on um, is about saying the word sepsis. So if I look back on my experience, the word sepsis was not mentioned from the ED through to the ward, ICU, um, and at discharge, not mentioned at all. So um, I had a follow-up with my GP probably about a week or so after discharge. Um, sepsis, again, not mentioned. Um, I think the main focus with my GP um, was, you know, she, she let me know, gee, you've been through a, a really big deal. Um, it was pretty serious what happened, um, but, you know, she made sure that I um, knew to take my um, ongoing oral antibiotics and um, the main thing that she wanted me to ensure that I did after that appointment was have my three-month um, chest x-ray because I'd also had hospital-acquired pneumonia. Um, and I just remember walking out of her office thinking, right, I've got to make sure I get this chest x-ray. Um, so as far as I knew, I just had a really bad infection in my arm and um, I just needed to, you know, take a couple of weeks to get over it and uh, get back to work. But um, unfortunately, um, that wasn't the case. Um, so after days and then and weeks, um, I'm starting to think, why am I not feeling better? Why am I not getting quickly enough? I, I had suffered from anxiety previously in my life, but um, the anxiety that I was now suffering post-sepsis um, was, um, was different. I was having a lot more trouble. My brain wasn't functioning the same. Um, I, uh, it's funny. Um, I used to have to, particularly in, in the months, probably, or well, probably the first 12 to 18 months post, um, septic shock, I'd have to describe things to my husband. I'd have to say, if I wanted him to pass me a, a glass of water, I'd have to say that thing that holds the water in it. And I couldn't, you know, couldn't think what the word glass was. Um, so things like that, and the reason I laughed before and said it's funny is that three three years out now, I um, I'm a lot better in that side of things. However, when I get tired, and it is nearly two a.m. in the morning here, so I'm having struggling a bit with my words tonight. But um, I am a lot better. I had slight hair loss. I had exhaustion, um, and and the real thing that was impacting me was this guilt for not being able to return to work sooner. Um, in fact, I did return to work a lot sooner than I should have um, because, as far as, as I said, as far as I knew, I had an infected arm. 
I do, um, as part of my job, I spend a lot of time out on the road in my car um, visiting clients. So my employer, my discussions with my employer were, um, you know, because my infection was in my arm, sorry, I didn't mention that. Um, my employer and I discussed about when will I be back at work, you know, when am I right to drive is really what our focus was, nothing about anything else. So that um, real, um, I guess, um, sense of being alone and not understanding why I wasn't getting better and, and, and I really just felt like maybe I'm a hypochondriac. Maybe I'm, you know, my daughter's 10 months old. Maybe this is what you feel like when you work and you're a mum. Maybe I do just need to um, just get on with it and stop feeling sorry for myself. Um, but it just wasn't getting better. So I, I, um, I, one evening I pulled out my, my discharge letter that I'd received from the hospital and I read the headline at the top and it said um, septic shock requiring inotropic support. So I decided to turn to the internet to, um, to try and work out what that was and, and that's what led me to discover um, the word sepsis for the first time in my life. Um, and um, from there I, I found websites like the Global Sepsis Alliance, um, the Sepsis Alliance in the US, um, which you made reference, um, Raymond, to my um, story that was published there that was probably I think within six months of um, my um, experience um, also the UK Sepsis Trust um, and then eventually the Australian Sepsis Network um, from there I uh, also found um, Carl touched on this I found um, Facebook support groups which there are several um, and they were a real godsend to me um, uh, I think that perhaps I wouldn't have made it through that first 12, 12 to 18 months um, without those um, online support groups uh, because other, otherwise I had no support. Um, through one of the ladies that I met um, on one of the support groups, um, she could see that I was really searching or seeking out for how can we make a difference? I need to change this. I can't sit back and just let the same thing happen to me. I can't keep hearing about, you know, people losing loved ones, people um, suffering. Um, and um, she suggests she um, sent me a message and suggested that I um, jump on Twitter um, because she said more medical professionals are, um, are on Twitter and um, you might be able to um, you might find more um, assistance with advocacy with Twitter. So I did, and that was probably 18 months or so ago now. Um, and and I am very active on Twitter, and I do get a lot of um, good information on Twitter. Um, I also, as part of all of that, um, found that there was a gap for Australia and New Zealand. We didn't have any um, support groups, so I started the Australia and New Zealand um, Sepsis Support Group for survivors um, that live in Australia and New Zealand. So that's a bit of an overview of, um, I guess, um, that real sense of sepsis not being um, explained. Um, um, as I said, right from um, me arriving at um, the emergency department right through to post-sepsis. Um, and it really was a journey of me discovering it um, for myself and then finding those um, those uh, other mechanisms for support. Um, so what would have helped? What would I have liked to have um, uh, been done differently? I think, um, and, and Carl again touched on this, and I think it's so, so, so important, is um, that under, having an understanding of sepsis prior to it happening. Um, had I known what it was, perhaps I would have 
you know, maybe ask an extra, an extra question um, when I was uh, sitting in emergency department, which I spent 12 hours um, in. And, you know, um, perhaps it might have been a poster on the wall. If I look at the um, sepsis awareness posters that we've got available now, um, I had the majority of those symptoms are the classic symptoms um, and it perhaps would have made me um, know to speak up more about what I was experiencing as opposed to just placing 100% reliance on um, the observations that the medical professionals are making. Um, I think information, um, uh, once, I'd, um, once I was in ICU, uh, information about exactly what I'd been through um, and what I would experience, um, um, information to lie um, for my family um, by way of, you know, pa information pamphlets, um, you know, same in the ward um, and at discharge, we were sent home with nothing. Um, and then I think, um, you know, I would, I don't know what um, the different um, healthcare systems have around the world, but um, in Australia, for example, I would love to see um, the hospital li um, liaising better with um, GPs um, and there being a better handover so that um, that care post-sepsis um, is handled um, in a better way and then also um, other services, um, you can be referred to other services, um, whether it be, you know, um, um, you know um, support services as far as counselling um, uh, or, you know, any all the various different things um, that um, survivors experience post-sepsis. So, um, and I, I think that clearly there's, there's um, you know, my GP didn't even mention the word sepsis either. Um, and, you know, she, um, it would have been great to see her um, offer some, um, uh, I guess, advice or um, referrals to other support services, which there was none. So that pretty much wraps up for what I wanted to touch on. I'm a little surprised that you only heard about sepsis when you read the reports after your discharge. And I was wondering uh, if you ever went back and spoke to your medical health care providers, either your GP or the at the hospital, and um, asked them about uh, why they had not provided you with this information specifically and giving you more information about the help you needed on discharge? That's an interesting question. I, I absolutely did. Um, I wrote a letter to the hospital, um, which was an overwhelmingly positive letter, um, um, mostly thanking them for saving my life. I, um, I did have a couple of questions um, because, you know, post-discharge I had found out about sepsis, so I had a couple of questions that were sepsis-related. Um, but as I said, overwhelmingly, it was a positive letter and I also let them know about the fact that I was now involved with um, advocacy about sepsis and I asked them how I can work with them to, um, you know, create better awareness um, and, and, you know, listed off a few ideas. Um, I received um, a really disappointing letter. Um, it, it was um, quite hurtful, actually. Um, I think that the two minor questions I asked... Um, which I'll, I'll tell you, um, um, the first question I asked was, was, was I treated for sepsis? Um, uh, and the answer came back, yes, you were. And the second question was, at what point did I receive broad-spectrum antibiotics? Um, they didn't answer that question. Um, but overwhelmingly, the response was quite negative um, and they didn't even acknowledge my, um, my interest in creating awareness 
um, or perhaps changing the way they do things. But, and uh, have you noticed or do you feel that there's been any advances or improvement in this since you've been advocating uh, for sepsis awareness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny, I mentioned Twitter earlier and I had um, a really fantastic experience several weeks ago. I had a couple of nurses from um, not the hospital I was treated at, but another one local to me, um, contact me via Twitter um, and apologise for stalking me, <laughs> they said, um, which um, I said to them they don't, absolutely do not, don't need to worry about that, but they said they'd been following me on Twitter for a while and um, were really interested in um, the advocacy work I do about sepsis. Um, and I'm actually spending um, World Sepsis Day um, with uh, them and their team um, where we're doing an IQ session where they're um, reviewing my experience as a case study and um, then I'll also be pre presenting after that uh, from a patient perspective. So um, I, it's not the hospital I was treated at, but it's a start in my home state. Um, and, you know, if you had have asked me a few months ago if I was ever going to see something like that local to where I live, I would have said I don't think it's possible. So, yes, things are definitely um, improving and, and changing. Uh, thanks very much, Fiona. Uh, I think we can possibly give a little more time to you and others uh, as one of the guests has not been able to contact us yet. I, I just will make a comment uh, before moving on to Ida Leff, uh, Nakma Beg, and that is that um, cognitive dysfunctions and uh, the long-term effect on mental ability is something which has been caused by sepsis or is uh, correlated with people who have suffered from sepsis is being studied today. And uh, I'm not sure uh, what the results have been. Perhaps some of the previous panel members and the other sessions have commented on this, but uh, your cognitive uh, problems are something uh, I've certainly heard many times from sepsis uh, patients. Absolutely, uh, so, yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, no, I was going to say, Fiona, that uh, uh, again, thank you so much for being on the panel and your contributions in Australia and to uh, uh, sepsis awareness generally. And you know, I wish you good health and thank a you. long life of contribution uh, to our cause. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, so I'd like to move on now uh, to the next panelist, Idalat Natma Bade. <clears throat> her story began to unfold in 2007 when she experienced, in her own words, the thin line between life and death caused by sepsis. She fell ill due to septic shock, spent five days in ICU. Her story uh, is eerily similar to my own and in that she saw in the space of a few days or a few hours' time that she went into shock, developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, uh, which uh, I'm sure the audience is very familiar with. Her family was informed that it could go either way, leaving them between hope and fear. Uh, when I was in ICU, unconscious, of course, uh, one doctor said there was no hope, and another said 
I have seen people in his condition survive. Uh, this, uh, I can assure you that my family responded better to the latter. I'd let us, uh, many important observations on the recovery process and continuing effects that is the sequelae of sepsis. With that, I'm turn it over to you, Idolette, to tell us your story. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Ray, and uh, for making this possible, all of you, the Global Sepsis Alliance and so many people involved. There's so much hunger for recognition and sharing. It really moves me to be part of this today. Yes, uh, I was in a critical uh, condition back in 2007, uh, and I had a near-death experience, which I find difficult to put into words, but fortunately, thank God, I turned the corner after having been ventilated for a few days. Sepsis uh, strikes like lightning, without warning, seeming to resemble the flu and imposing a burden on your loved ones as well. In 2009, I went back to the ICU together with my nine-year-old daughter to see the place where I had struggled with my critical illness. The impact on your loved ones is huge, and that doesn't end with leaving the hospital. Um, I want to go back to uh, that morning, um, just before ICU admission, uh, antibiotic IV treatment because of pneumonia had already been started. And I tried to make sense of it all. How did my body lose control? And it really felt like some supernatural force was pushing me over the edge. And it started with dizziness, when walking to the toilet and soon it felt like my legs went wobbly. So for me, the, the dizziness was actually the first sign sounding the alarm that uh, something was really wrong. And I made it back to bed just in time and called for the nurse and it became clear that I had a very low blood pressure. And shortly after that, my feet and hands had turned ice cold and I felt my heart pounding, beating very fast. And being a nurse, at the time I realized that I was going into shock. And in less than 15 minutes, my shortness of breath worsened. And as I coughed, my mouth filled with bloody mucus and fluid. And for a moment, I was, I was really caught by the, the very fear of dying. And I thank God there was an ICU to turn to. It saved my life, really. And afterwards, it turned out I had uh, signs of a hantavirus infection in my blood. So, um, thank God I survived, but sepsis nearly killed me. And um, just like uh, Fiona experienced, my, um, well, I, 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 Never heard anyone mention the word sepsis. Not until a few months after my discharge, I noticed the word sepsis in my medical record. 
during my nursing education, the word had only been mentioned with uh, regard to a complication of a wound infection or a peritonitis, but never ever had it been referred to as this uh, systemic host response or organ dysfunction that was making my body react in this uh, life-threatening way. And as I said earlier, sepsis really caught me by surprise. And I think lots of patients don't realize what hit them because just like me, they were never informed. So hence, it became my mission to communicate about sepsis and to literally spread the word. And I want to mention something very important, that even when patients are not admitted to the ICU, sepsis remains a critical illness. Actually, it seems to be the most common critical illness outside the ICU. Also, because it is often not promptly diagnosed at the general ward. And I think when it comes to consistent compliance of protocols and alertness, a lot of work still has to be done in hospitals and other settings in the Netherlands, but in the rest of the world as well. And I'd like to take a closer look right now at the recovery period and, and my mission, which turned eventually into a very fulfilling job. During my recovery, I often experienced loneliness. Although I had the full support from my family and friends, but no doctor seemed equipped to give me advice about my recovery. No one told me what to expect. No one told me that it was normal to feel depressed at times. No one told me that sequelae like lack of concentration and problems with your short-time memory can linger on. And I want to emphasize that I'm very, very grateful that I didn't lose limbs like many other patients did and that my organs weren't damaged that much. But my recovery took me a long time with a lot of readmissions and I had to quit my original job. Now, being a nurse, that impact of sepsis triggered me. So after my illness, I decided to bring all the information about sepsis and its sequelae together in a book in Dutch called Septis a Shock, uh, followed by a second book in 2016, also translated in English, uh, that was called Sepsis and Afterwards, really to serve as a guide for other survivors and their relatives. And for that same reason, I initiated the Dutch website uh, Sepsis and Darna, which means sepsis and afterwards. Um, I joined the movement of family and patient-centered intensive care, educating uh, people about PICS, the post-intensive care syndrome, and yeah, focusing on how can we reduce the impact of an intensive care stay. And I started providing guidance to patients recovering from sepsis and teaching nurses about the long-term effects of sepsis. 
I'd, I'd really like to put the spotlight on that, those long-term effects of sepsis and the lack of aftercare. I put my heart and soul into this. I'm convinced that the development of expertise on sequelae after sepsis is really necessary. In my work, I meet a lot of patients facing long-term problems that need to be more explored and addressed. Um, examples are the, the neurocognitive deficits, as well as the problems with uh, neuropathy and sepsis being a trigger for all kinds of other issues like uh, autoimmune diseases and, and um, even disturbances like uh, autonomic dysfunction. And especially after a longer time, when patients develop all kinds of physical and mental complaints, there is no specialist they can turn to. Actually, they are in no man's land. A multidisciplinary research center specialized in sepsis sequelae would really be a major step forward. So we can eventually support survivors with tailor-made aftercare, especially um, those who weren't in the ICU often don't get rehab, although they have been critically ill and often suffer from brain damage. And that's one of the reasons I also started organizing uh, the workshop Recovering After Sepsis, not only to offer them a chance to meet each other, but also to give former patients tips about good nutrition, brain training, uh, dietary supplements, which I found to be very helpful myself, uh, to build up trust in your body again. And um, complementary medicine really made a difference for me. It increased my energy level my concentration, and really lowered my susceptibility to infections, uh, thus preventing further readmissions. Now, I'd like to close with two more things as signs of hope. First is the Dutch national petition, SOS for sepsis. Recently, with a group of people affected by sepsis, one of which lost both her lower legs due to sepsis. We handed over a petition to members of the House of Representatives named sepsis, SOS for Sepsis, stating that the public awareness regarding sepsis in the Netherlands is dramatically low and that unnecessary damage and suffering are the consequences. Professor Dr. Peter Pickers, known for his uh, sepsis Research. He is also he was also a speaker today. Was also present to support us. And as a result, a third meeting with the Ministry of Healthcare is scheduled on the 17th of September. So we are very happy with that, and we hope to organize a sepsis conference in the near future and give really a boost to the public sepsis awareness. Also on the 29th of September, we have a first. Dutch sepsis peer meeting. The last thing is about my personal motivation. My own illness was a wake-up call. 
but there's one other reason why I'm so devoted to this fight against sepsis. In 2015, we lost our 15-year-old daughter to a brain hemorrhage, but there was absolutely nothing we could have done to prevent it from happening. We were powerless. Now that inspires me to focus on sepsis, because in many cases, we can prevent it, or at least intervene earlier. So let's do together what we need to do in order to save the lives we can. I thank you very much. Thanks so much, Idolette. Uh, that's very inspiring. Um, it, it strikes me as uh, so interesting that uh, with your nursing education and background, you know so little about sepsis, but that too is not an unusual story. Uh, I've uh, interviewed people and done presentations with a nurse in Canada who um, also did not recognize their own symptoms. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to say that building up trust in your body is so important. Uh, I'm not sure that I, um, uh, you know, it's a, a different paradigm when you have sepsis and your body has completely let you down. And then you have to deal with sequelae and it's a new life afterwards. I think Carl uh, has also mentioned that although in a different context. Uh, so uh, I think we were a little short on time. There'll be a question and answer afterwards. And yeah. um, thank you so much for your inspired thoughts and deeds. <laughs> um, so we're going to uh, move on to uh, El-Kateem Elias Mohammed uh, from Sudan. Uh, Dr. Mohammed is, has also suffered from sepsis and, uh, will be interested, I'm sure, in hearing his story about, uh, how that occurred and, uh, the results of it. Uh, he's a renowned consultant chest physician in Suzanne, in Sudan and a national figure and campaigner and advocate for healthcare in this country. He's also participated with the World Health Organization, and uh, any of you can go to the program for the Congress and see his background. Um, I have uh, personally spoken with and read about many health professionals who failed to diagnose their own condition of sepsis, uh, going back to my comments about nurses. and. Um, I'd like to turn it over to you, uh, Dr. Mohammed, and uh, thank you so much for uh, coming and visiting with us on this panel. Uh, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. I'm going to tell uh, my story, but uh, first of all, I would like to thank the speaker before me and pick up some of the key ways which she has mentioned, that there's always hope we have to rely on early prevention and we have to learn from our mistakes. So this is about my story. 
I developed a, a cardiac event, went to the ER, very well controlled, uh, IV lines were uh, inserted and so on. Things went on very well till the third day after an angiography, went there very smoothly, and then I was transferred to a room in the ward. That's on the, fourth, on the third day after lines were inserted. So on that day morning, I felt very, very ab abnormal fatigue. I couldn't even read the papers. I couldn't talk from side to side. I couldn't sit up on the chair. And then about uh, dinner time, off my foot. I have no appetite at all. And in the evening, I had some shivering, told the nurse who related to the doctor. And he asked blood field for malaria and CBC. And I noticed that there was a swelling at the site of the cannula. So I told the nurse to remove the cannula. And I told her, this is not about CPC or blood field for malaria. It's about something else. That information was relayed to the doctor who uh, instructed to prescribe antibiotics. That was the third day. Following morning, the fourth day, very high fever, vomiting, about 9.30 in the morning. Uh, at about 11 o'clock, I was uh, talking to my uh, wife, and then I lost consciousness, complete loss of consciousness. In the evening, about 9 in the evening, I found myself in another hospital, I could recognize the hospital, surrounded by friends, most of them were doctors, and I opened my eyes, and all of them, thank God, and so you are well. I looked at the monitor, I found my blood pressure was 64 by 46. That's when I came, that's when I became well. And I knew that I was in septic shock. Uh, my wife told me later that she was talking to me and suddenly I switched off. My eyes were gazing at the ceiling and she raised my hand, which I couldn't uh, hold my hands up and she knew that something serious was going on. Uh, she called two of my friends, lifelong friends, who were doctors, and they came uh, running. And uh, after that, I spent a few days uh, in the hospital, in the ICU, very well looked after, giving uh, supportive treatment, giving the appropriate antimicrobials and so on. And uh, there were no uh, uh, serious or significant uh, post-sepsis uh, problems apart from fatigue, intense trouble. About two weeks, I was unable to go to work. I, I tried, but I couldn't. So we know that uh, to prevent sepsis, we have to intervene early. But to intervene early, we have to know when to intervene. And I think that the criteria for intervention, that's pulse and blood pressure and fever and so on, if we wait for those as criteria for intervention, then that's too late.
Because when I developed all those symptoms, I was only about two and a half hours from the septic shock. So what should we do? Fatigue often overlooked by, uh, by doctors. What I think are very important symptoms. Loss of appetite, shivering, disturbed sleep on and off, on and off with bad dreams. So the treatment will start actually 24 hours later than it should have been started. When I had that fatigue and shivering and loss of appetite, I think that was the intervention time if you're going to have successful treatment of uh, for sepsis, early intervention, which means that early recognition, which means that we have to inquire about symptoms on a daily basis. And just like temperature, blood pressure, and so on. And uh, secondly, we have to have daily inspection for every line inserted. Often these lines are neglected, covered by plasters and so on and so on, and nobody knows what's going uh, beneath those uh, covers. There might have been a swelling, there might have been and so on. Actually, I couldn't, I only observed the swelling when it was very visible. And as you could see in the uh, picture, if you have it in front of you, that that was the second morning. But it was not visible. Unless one is particularly looking for signs of sepsis, that swelling, that pain, that redness, that thrombophilitis, and so on. So, uh, what I hope and what I request, we have to revise our criteria for intervention. I am I'm a very senior doctor, very people, very senior people came to look after me. But I think if somebody else, right, who doesn't have, let us say, the connections, the situation would have been different. And uh, uh, the second thing is we have to, in our countries, we have to raise it high up on the agenda as a national problem. It is a national problem because in our country, according to statistics, it is number two uh, cause of mortality in our hospitals. So we need measurement, good measurement, causes, interventions regarding symptoms, uh, criteria for uh, intervention. Uh, we know that if we diagnose symptoms, we have to be within the first hour, right? I was given started treatment after 24 hours or 25 hours. So uh, these were the mistakes, and uh, uh, doctors oh, almost have uh, 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 treatment. I mean, uh, uh, training on so many. Uh, CPR, so on and so on and so on, and I think combating sepsis should be one of the mandatory training programs for all medical professions and health teams 
that are involved to deal with infection and sepsis because it's a killer. It's one of the important killers, unfortunately, in our institutions, which actually should be the institutions to help them. I was saved from myocardial infarction. I could have been lost because of sepsis. So why are we having these hospitals and institutions? And uh, these are the lessons which I, I learned from uh, my uh, experience. And uh, you have got, that was a very, very severe infection. If you look at my hands, that was the fourth day. And that was the site of the cannula, as if it was punctured by a professional uh, operator. All that could have been prevented. The sad thing. Thank you uh, very much. If there are any uh, questions, uh, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Mohammed <clears throat> or Al Katim, if I can call you that. Um, I think uh, a couple of the things you've said have really struck, uh, resonated with me, and one of them is that even a trained, uh, highly trained physician such as yourself uh, becomes completely vulnerable when you're uh, really stricken with a serious illness. So vulnerable that it, uh, I think even you did not recognize uh, the symptoms of sepsis uh, as of, until it was almost too late. Do you have any right. thoughts on the vulnerability right. of patients? Yes, 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 I think so. Even I, could, I you couldn't recognize the symptoms. I was wondering what was happening. Now I said, oh, you are not your, your normal self. What's going on? But I didn't know what was going on. Well, that possibly could have been because of uh, cognitive dysfunction, uh, which is the side effect, uh, maybe low oxygen levels, low blood pressure. Uh, you're just not able to think the way you normally would. If, had you been di uh, the diagnostic physician, uh, you would have looked at it completely differently. Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. That's why I, need, I think it needs special training. Um, and I think that, uh, at least in my case, uh, when I tried to point out to uh, the emergency doctor the seriousness of my illness, uh, and I was ignored, I was too vulnerable to uh, and too weak to really put up a fight. And uh, the other observation I mm. have is uh, the lessons learned and um, how I often felt uh, I would have liked to learn those lessons, perhaps watching someone else rather than experiencing them myself. They are very hard lessons to learn. And I think what you've said really indicates that we have to learn these lessons now. We can't wait till either uh, we ourselves or a family member uh, suffers from sepsis. We have to be proactive, and I think that's the message we've heard from everyone on the panel thus far. So um, do you have any further observations, or should we... 
can we move on to our last speaker and then come back to a full discussion perhaps afterwards? Elka team, anything further and, you would uh, like to tell us? Doctors and uh, nurses as well. Uh, I think that they are not well aware enough of the development of sepsis. And even when there are signs, it's the, the, they look at it as a peripheral, not central issue. So it has to be put high on the agenda, that's by special training and by highlighting the problems. That's what's happening now. And that's the focus of uh, our efforts uh, through GSA. And I know in many hospitals throughout the world now, uh, thanks to uh, the medical healthcare providers and, and volunteers and people who are participating. Um, I'd like to uh, turn to our last uh, panelist, uh, and that is uh, Peter Wilkinson from Brisbane, Australia. Uh, he and his wife Amy have a beautiful daughter, Mia, uh, now five, who just last year was a healthy a uh, happy, active four-year-old, but in October 2017, Mia became devastatingly sick with sepsis. In only 48 hours, uh, the illness stopped her heart. She was put on life support, and the consequences were dire. Uh, she actually lost both her hands and her feet and will live the rest of her life as a quad amputee. Uh, there's an inspiring video, uh, which is available online about how Mia has progressed, and of course about uh, uh, Peter and Amy, uh, her parents. Uh, but Mia is only one of 18,000 Australians who are diagnosed with sepsis annually. Uh, again, and I'm going to let Peter, of course, tell his story, but uh, the quote from uh, his, uh, the material on, on the, online is, on Saturday, Mia woke up sicker than her parents had ever seen her. Again, the same refrain, sicker than ever. There's something completely unusual and not right going on. Uh, and this is, Unfortunately, uh, many times overlooked by healthcare providers. Um, so, with that, uh, Peter, uh, may I turn it over to you to tell us your story and the story of Mia? Thank you, Raymond. Um, yeah, uh, thank thank you everyone for the, for the opportunity to to speak today and to um, talk a little bit about our story. Um, my name is Peter Wilkinson, and if you had asked me a year ago if I thought I was lucky, I would have quickly answered yes. I have a beautiful wife, Amy, and three wonderful children, Ellie, Mia, and Max. If you ask me the same question today, the answer is a bit more complicated, and the reason it's more complicated is sepsis. On October 13, in 2017, my four-year-old daughter, Mia, spent the morning playing happily with her cousins. In the afternoon, she complained of a sore belly, and by the evening, she was throwing up and running a high fever. Mia was ill throughout the night. Her fever was higher than we had seen before, and she seemed lethargic. 
our children had been sick before. But as Raymond said, uh, this time seemed unusual. So in the morning, we took Mia to see a GP. Mia didn't want to walk, so Amy took her in in a stroller. We were told Mia most likely had gastro. We were given a prescription for anti-nausea tablets and sent home with advice to give her fluids and rest. We set Mia up in front of the TV and checked on her through the day. In the afternoon, Amy went to check on Mia, and while she was awake, she didn't seem to see us, and she didn't respond to our questions. Amy immediately took her to hospital. During the trip to hospital, she regained alertness and was responding to questions. On admission to the emergency department, they wanted to weigh her. It was then that Amy discovered Mia had severe pain in her legs and could not stand. Mia was checked over again, and Amy was told there was a lot of influenza B going around, and that is probably what Mia had. The calf pain, they labelled viral myositis, which is a common complication of influenza B. Mia was again sent home to rest. That night, I carried Mia to the toilet because she couldn't get there by herself. I knew she couldn't stand, but I was shocked by how much pain she seemed to be in. I called the hospital, wanting to speak to someone who had seen her earlier. That isn't something you can do, so I was instead transferred to a health advice line. I spoke to a nurse, explaining that we had taken Mia to a GP and in the hospital earlier that day and been sent home, but I was still concerned. I told her that while Mia did seem more alert, her leg pain seemed worse. The nurse guided me through some checks, which included trying to move Mia's legs. She could hear Mia crying out in pain, and she asked if Mia had a tendency to be dramatic. I told her that the opposite was true, and Mia was normally very tough. When the call ended, we were still worried, but we felt our concerns had been heard without raising alarm. Amy slept in Mia's room that night and checked on her every two hours, prodding her to verify that she would react. The next day, Mia seemed to hold steady. She wasn't getting better but she didn't seem worse either. We checked on her throughout the day, asking, are you okay? And each time she responded, I'm okay. Then Amy spotted the rash on Mia's legs. It blanched, but that didn't reassure us, so Amy took her back to hospital. When Amy got to hospital, a nurse noticed Mia while they were waiting in line. She recognised that Mia was very sick and immediately ushered Amy and Mia inside. Amy called me shortly afterwards and I arranged for my aunt to look after our other children and went to hospital. I knew things were serious, but I was also trying to convince myself that everything was still somehow okay, that we'd be walking out of the hospital in an hour or two. When I walked into the room at the emergency department, I knew that wasn't true. Mia was surrounded by medical staff who all seemed very busy and very focused. Mia was clearly distressed both by the illness and by the nurse's attempts to add more IV lines to the ones she already had. The sound of her crying out in pain and fear in that room will be with me for the rest of my life. In ICU, they found room for me at the head of the bed where I could stroke Mia's hair and do my best to comfort her. She kept telling me that she felt better and she wanted to go home. But she wasn't better. A doctor told us that they needed to put her on a machine to help her breathe. We were told that intubation 
could be distressing to watch and we should wait elsewhere and come back when it was done. So we did as we were told. Amy went back first and I remember her calling down the hall, Peter, we're losing her. I ran in to see Mia again, surrounded by medical staff and a chest compression machine working to restart her heart. I can't describe the pain of that moment. I couldn't think. It just hurt. Thankfully, her heart started beating again. The next few days were terrible beyond my worst fears. I had never known it was possible to feel pain like I felt as I watched Mia lying still in a hospital bed, fighting for her life. Her hands and feet turned a dark purple colour, and we were told she made his fingertips and toes. I found signing the consent forms to be a huge burden. I was supposedly giving informed consent for this procedure or that one. There was nothing informed about my consent. I just wanted them to save my daughter. Eventually I broke. I was given a form to sign and I couldn't do it. What's the point, I cried. I don't understand any of it. I was left alone and Amy took over form signing duties. We felt a surge of hope when the ionotropes were reduced and there was an immediate improvement in the colour of her hands and feet. What followed was bittersweet. Even as we rejoiced to see her woken up, we grieved the loss of her fingertips, then her fingers, then her hands. The same creeping blackness also took her toes and then her feet. When we brought Mia back to hospital that Sunday, she was treated by dedicated doctors and nurses in the emergency department and PICU. There is no doubt that without their help, Mia would have died and will be forever grateful. When Mia was moved into the ward, the doctors and nurses were no less dedicated, but we quickly realised that hospital beds are in short supply. We felt pressured to book Mia in for amputation. We started to wonder if there were KPIs that had to be met. It felt like getting Mia out of hospital was a higher priority than giving her the best long-term result. On the 10th of November, Mia's arms were amputated below the elbow. The day afterwards, I was overcome with grief, not just because my daughter had lost her hands, but also because it happened without me being sure that it was the best that could be done. Mia was relying on me, and I had let myself get pushed into the operation before I felt certain. For her legs, we were initially told that Mia would have a through-knee amputation. I could see the damage to her legs, but it looked to me like she had a lot left alive below the knee. So I asked whether her knees could be saved. I was told no. When I persisted, I was told that attempting to save her knees would be a mistake. I was told that often. I'm sure I was viewed as problematic by more than a few of the medical staff, but we sought advice from prosthetists and amputees, and the message came back loud and clear. Save everything you can. The amount of stress we felt at that time was enormous. I remember being told, we need to think about what is best for Mia, as if maybe that wasn't the number one thing on my mind. We felt torn between what the hospital clearly wanted us to do and what we thought was best. Eventually, it was understood that we would not agree to a three-knee amputation before exploring every other option. We were going to wait, see how our legs were healing, and decide what to do later. On January 3, Mia's legs were amputated below the knee. 
I still felt grief, but this time I also felt happy and relieved. Amy and I had a glass of wine to celebrate me getting the best result possible. I wish we'd been given the same time for Mia's arms. I'll never know if Mia could have had a better result, if maybe a few extra centimetres could have been saved, and not knowing hurts. Today, Mia is learning to walk again on prosthetic legs and working to figure out her prosthetic arms. She smiles and laughs and tells us she loves us. I feel very lucky to still have her with us because I know that for many, her story is so much worse. But at the same time, I wish that I could have been luckier, that Mia could have been luckier. What hurts the most is knowing that what happened to Mia is preventable, or was preventable. We will go the rest of our lives knowing that if Mia had received treatment earlier, things would be different. I think of the symptoms Mia had when we sought help. Rapid breathing, disorientation, fever, muscle pain, mottled skin, vomiting. They come straight off a sepsis awareness pamphlet, but we had never seen a sepsis pamphlet, and we didn't know. That's why it's important to increase public awareness. I asked specifically about meningitis, because I'd been reached by the awareness campaign for it in Australia. Mia's treatment may have started much earlier, if I'd also known to ask, could it be sepsis? Equally important to raising the awareness of the public is increasing the awareness of the health professionals that we go to for help. We didn't know about sepsis, but we do know Mia. And as with many other sepsis stories, we knew something wasn't right. That feeling led us to seek medical help, not once, not twice, but three times on the day before Mia was admitted to ICU. I remember how quick they were to reassure us that nothing was out of the ordinary. Oh yes, there's a lot of this going around at the moment. Fever is a good thing. We don't worry about the actual temperature anymore. It's just a number. She can't be in too much pain if she has fallen asleep. I think there should be more formal, measurable tracking of the concern expressed by patients and their families. People express themselves in different ways, and it can be hard to gauge how someone you have just met is feeling. There's an existing method for dealing with this for determining pain levels, which is to ask patients to rate their pain from 1 to 10. I think you would get some very useful data if all patients were asked at presentation, on a scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you? How many times have you sought help for this? This data should be recorded because it comes from the person most familiar with the patient. Asking the question also gives the treating physician an immediate insight into the mind of the patient. If someone says they are a 9 out of 10 on the worry scale, it prompts the question, why? How is this different to other times? When we seek help, we need someone to listen to what we have to say. If you start with the assumption that the person you are treating just has the flu, you will be right most of the time. But if you start by asking, could it be sepsis, you may save their life. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Uh, there's so much of uh, what you've said um, uh, resonates with my own experience, and I'm sure with the others on the panel. Uh, and um, you know, being it that this is so recent, it's a um, we're so grateful that you're able to speak about it. It took me years, uh, almost a decade, to even begin to talk about my own experience. 
Um, and uh, I have watched the video and I uh, can see uh, that uh, Mia will live a fruitful and a happy life uh, in spite of what has happened. And uh, the guilt part of it is also part of the equation. Um, my wife struggled with guilt for years because she went through the same experience of medical uh, health providers, ambulance driver, saying he's going to be okay. We've already seen him. And uh, she just did not push it as hard as she felt she should have, uh, which resulted in many, many complications in my own life. Um, so I, um, <clears throat> I hope that Mia will get the help that she needs. Um, you know, in the situation that Mia is in, she's more likely to get help than those of us who have what I would say hidden problems, like you know the cognitive problems or the fatigue, uh, the depression. Uh, that go along with sepsis. Um, so, uh, Peter, is there any uh, other observations or comments that you would like to share with us? Uh, I think at this point, Katja, you can open the mic uh, to the panelists and uh, we can have an open discussion uh, with uh, all concerned. Uh, there's, at this point, not really a lot of questions or comments on the chat line, uh, but I welcome people. Uh, here's your opportunity. Uh, send in your questions or comments, and we'll talk to the panel about them. Okay. So why don't we just, uh, we have about uh, 10 minutes left for the in the session, and uh, just like to invite, uh, perhaps we'll start in the order that we've done the uh, with Carl first, since he did the uh, first presentation. Carl, your thoughts on what you've heard? Yeah, thanks, Ray. Uh, you know, listening to these stories, it's just incredible to me. And again, I mentioned this before, there's no way to measure the emotional burden that sepsis brings. The heartache, the decades of, oh my gosh, sorrow. We've got to do more. I mean, everyone has to do more. It's uh, it's so devastating to hear all these stories. Strength to you all. Uh, any uh, Fiona, would you like to carry on, or anything you'd like to say about the other um, uh, presenters? Um, I'm extremely emotional after hearing um, Peter's presentation. Um, I'm really proud of him for the amazing job that he just did. Um, I think um, you all probably heard the emotion in my voice um, during my presentation um, when I talked about my passion um, and my drive um, for, for advocacy for sepsis and um, hearing stories like what um, Mia, Peter and Amy um, and their other children have been through is just a, yeah, and um, a huge reminder of um, why I do what I do. Thank you uh, so much, Peter, and uh, the others for your inspiring uh, stories. And um, 
Well, I think it's still so important. We uh, we should be our own ambassadors. Uh, I often say to clients when it comes to aftercare, be your own ambassador. You have to be, because there's no organized aftercare for dealing with uh, with your mental problems, your physical problems. Um, it's a lot of grieving what you have to do uh, because um, you lost the person you were before. And um, that aspect doesn't get much attention either the mental aspect. And it must be so hard for, for Peter to um, see his, his daughter and um, struggling. And um, yeah, I can only imagine um, what it must be like. But I think uh, when it comes to um, aftercare and when it comes to early recognition of sepsis, we can't uh, tell it enough uh, and, and spread the word and uh, sound the alarm bells. And I hope in, in Holland we can make uh, steps in the good direction when it comes to that. And, well, sometimes peop stories like uh, the story Peter just told can bring something about, you know, in, in uh, the government and, and, and that things um, may start to change. And, um, well, I, I really hope that may be of some, uh, some comfort to, to you, Peter. Yeah. That things may uh, perhaps change a bit. Um, well, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm meant to respond that. That's certainly my hope. Yeah, I mean, it cha change is what we're hoping for. Um, it, it's yeah. What what happened to me here is is terrible, um, but we are lucky in comparison to so many others who would wish for what we have because they lost their child. Um, Mia will have challenges. Um, but she's here to face those challenges, um, and, and we're grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, I'd just like to read a couple of comments uh, from the chat line. Uh, I think that all of the stories here, I agree, are totally inspiring, and uh, the story of Nia is certainly right at the top of the 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 list in terms of the people who are participating and listening. Uh, and the courage of all of you in telling and sharing your stories uh, is uh, so important for the healthcare and other listeners to, um, to hear about this and realize the profound nature of, what, of how sepsis changes people's lives. Um, we have a uh, comment from a high school student in Atlanta whose father uh, died from sepsis. 
Uh, we have um, another comment about uh, how moving and incredible the presentations are. And uh, the, I think, realization in many of the comments of how uh, healthcare professionals uh, have to coordinate their activities both before, during, and after sepsis uh, to uh, deal with this, I would say, um, serious medical, I would say, almost emergency situation throughout the world. Um, I think we uh, we have uh, time for a last few comments from any panel members. Uh, if you wish to uh, uh, make any last remarks, and then we will have to close the session. Uh, why don't we start? Uh, uh, just jump in, and and uh, then I would like to end up with a thank you to those involved. It's Fiona Raymond. I just wanted to, I just did, I saw a question um, from an Australian emergency nurse um, that just asked, um, what do we think the research priorities um, you want to be focused on in research here? Um, I won't address the question directly, but I will say um, to refer to the Australian, Net, uh, Australian Sepsis Network's website and have a look at the um, Stopping Sepsis, a National Action Plan that was published in March this year, um, and have a look at the recommendations there. Just Carl, I'd like to make a comment too. Uh, when I went over to the WHO meeting and they did the world resolution, you know, 194 countries, the thing that hit me between the eyes was a slide that someone put up that was prevention of infection is prevention of sepsis. So we have a cure. That's prevent the infections. So we need to get this early. We all look at the end game and treating it when it's that far gone. But I think, I mean, I just can't get over how much that moved me. I mean, what? If you don't get infections, you won't get sepsis. Take care of everything. Vaccinations, hand hygiene, the slightest cut. So just want to leave because that sure hit me. I want to leave that with you. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Uh, well, yeah. I'd like to. Um, sorry, go ahead. Is it? Do we have yeah, another I, comment? Um, yeah, I I wanted to um, um, emphasize um, the the sequelae uh, people experience uh, who weren't in the ICU. Um, they too um, suffer from uh, sequelae, and. Um, those problems uh, should be addressed too. Uh, for those uh, people, there isn't any aftercare whatsoever. So um, I'd like to um, put that in the spotlight as well. Sepsis is a really uh, a larger problem, a bigger problem than uh, just um, post-ICU. So... Um, it really is a devastating disease. And when you can't return to your uh, job because you have these neurocognitive impairments, uh, that, true, uh, that, that is really uh, a loss and uh, difficult to, um, to cope with too. So, uh, yeah. Early recognition is the key to everything. And 
I, I uh, recently um, I had a chat with someone who depends on IV nutrition, a woman, a young woman, and um, she gets uh, sepsis every now and then. Can you imagine? So we, we can't always uh, prevent sepsis because uh, people are, are very, very vulnerable, but then we can invest in biomarkers that we can early detect sepsis in the blood and intervene as, as early as possible. So I wanted to uh, um, say that uh, to conclude. Uh, Thanks, uh, Idlet. Um, and uh, I'd like to, I think our time um, is up. And uh, I'd like to... Thank all of you panelists, uh, such an inspiring group of people uh, for sharing intimate stories and uh, for uh, doing what you are doing to help the awareness uh, of sepsis uh, spread throughout the world and not just uh, the uh, industrialized world. Um, <laughs> this is a... Uh, a wake-up call, I hope, to healthcare, for healthcare providers as well. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Marvin Zeck and Katja Kubal and the technical staff for all the help uh, for setting up the Congress uh, and all the sessions in it. And a great thanks uh, to Conrad Reinhardt, uh, who is the chairman of GSA, and to all of the executives for their Herculean efforts over the years. It's been a privilege to be on the executive. And of course, uh, this could not have happened without the sponsors for their contributions and uh, for the volunteers who participated in this event. So with that, uh, thanks to all and good, uh, good day, good night, wherever you may be. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All the strength for everyone. Thanks for listening. This was the last episode before Christmas, and we will be on a short break over the holidays. The next session, Improving Awareness, National and Global Strategies, will be out on January 3rd. We wish you happy holidays and a joyful new year. See you in 2019.